Well, on Easter Sunday of 2014, uh, it was April 20th, Riverwood Church launched. And yet, if you think about it, we didn't really start on April 20th. Because there had been two years of prayer before Leanne and I ever decided that, yes, we need to plant a church. Then there was about eight months of fundraising there was about 16 months living in Kansas City doing a church planning leadership in, uh, uh, internship residency. There was another 21 months of just living in Waverly, trying to build relationships and trust. And so really, Riverwood didn't start in a day. Riverwood started over about six years. But if you think about it, that's how a lot of things start. So often when we see the start of something, it isn't this one day thing, it's usually kind of a high point in an ongoing story. Take for instance, if you're married, your marriage. Yeah, you celebrate an anniversary, and yeah, it was on that day that God took the two of you and made you one. However, there were probably weeks, if not months, of friendship, dating, and then months of engagement and planning. So yeah, there was this start but it was the high point in a story. Same with, with having a kid. Jake and Grace just had Izzy. They didn't start, you know, Saturday, I mean, Friday morning going, you know what, let's have a kid. And then Friday night, you know, like, pop her out. You know, like, no, like, there's nine months of this baby developing. Nine months of a mom and dad emotionally preparing themselves for the changes ahead. Yeah, it started on March 18th for them, and yet it was this ongoing high point in this ongoing story. Today, we're going to see the launch of the first church, the global church. And yes, there's a starting point. But even though we're not going to spend a ton of time talking about it, there was a lot of work in preparation. For three years, Jesus was discipling and leading his guys to prepare them to be the leaders that the church would need. And after all that time and preparation, it's now time for the church to start. To see it for yourself, I invite you to open up your Bible to Acts chapter 2. We are going to be doing about uh, three-fourths of the, the book, uh, sorry, of the chap uh, second chapter of Acts. Um, we're not going to cover every single verse, so I'm going to encourage you to go back and reread this passage later today or later this week um, because there's some great stuff that we're not going to be getting to. But because so much of it is all tied together, it's worth us taking this huge uh, swath. So that's why I encourage you to have a Bible. So not only for you to be able to read it here this morning, but that way it's easier to find and reread later today or this week. Um, we're going to be starting in verse 1, but before we get there, I, I need to remind you that three weeks ago when we began this series in Acts, uh, we heard Jesus give his mandate for the church. So before the church has even started, he's laying the groundwork, the framework, and he's like, here's what you're going to do. Here's the mission. Here's your mandate. It was Acts 1 verse 8. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, there was a command in there. He's telling them, you're going to go and be my witnesses. And he told them where, right? Right there in your local context, in the surrounding region of Judea. You're going to reach those who are a bit different than you in Samaria, but you're going to ultimately be going to the end of the earth. 
But what we also saw was that they were not supposed to be doing that in their own power, in their own strength, with their own wisdom, using their own resources. God was going to be helping them. He was going to be giving them the Holy Spirit. They would receive power. That's what we see fulfilled today. So join me at Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and let us see the power of the Holy Spirit come upon the disciples. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So back in uh, chapter 1, verse 15, we saw that there's about 120 followers of Jesus. All right, so they've all gathered together in this one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Just as we chose to launch Riverwood on the Christian holiday of Easter, God chose to launch his church, the global church, on Pentecost, a Jewish festival. This was a springtime festival that, that God kind of established in order for the people to bring their first fruits. It, it was all about a harvest. So as they had been planting stuff, the first crop that comes in, they were to be giving it as a tithe to God. So it was this big festival. Pentecost always happened 50 days after Passover. I, it, the way I, I saw one commentary put it was, it was a week of weeks, seven weeks after. So 49, 15 days after the Passover, you had Pentecost, which makes sense. Because Pentecost, which is all about the harvest, in fact, some Jews called it the Feast of the Harvest, here it is happening 50 days after Passover. Well, we know that Jesus died on Passover. He was the ultimate Passover lamb. If you were familiar with the story uh, in the book of, of Exodus where the, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt and in, in those 10 plagues that God brings against the Egyptians to get Pharaoh to let the people go, the last and 10th plague, the final plague, is this angel of death is going to come in and kill the firstborn of everything, humans, cattle, everything. However, God told the Israelites if they would sacrifice a lamb, kill this lamb, and brush its blood over the doorpost when the angel of death passed through the streets of the city, it would see the blood over the doorpost and know something already died there, and so everyone else would live. Jesus was the ultimate Passover lamb, dies on Passover, so that those who put their faith in Jesus, it's like the blood of Jesus is painted over them, and now death passes over them. So even though we will physically die, we will not spiritually die. We will live spiritually forever because of the blood of Jesus. Well, Jesus being killed on the Passover, well, this event is happening on Pentecost. So 50 days after the death of Jesus, we are now seeing God launching the church and this makes sense because Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 10, verse 2, that the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. The harvest is great. There's a ton of people who need to know about God's love for them. There just aren't enough workers to go out into that harvest. And so here Jesus has been preparing not just his 12 disciples, not just the 72 that he sent out. He's now got 120, and he's wanting to empower them to go out and get the harvest. So it makes sense that God chose Pentecost as the day for the launch of his church. But the controversy is not about 
the fact that it starts on, at Pentecost. The controversy, the questions, the confusion come from verses 2 through 4. We, we see here that there's this mighty rushing wind. Sounds like it comes from heaven. And it comes in. And, and not only did the 120 that were all together hear it, we're going to see here in a little bit that the city heard it. People are gonna, going to rush to this location. But this sound comes in, and then it says that there were these divided tongues as of fire. Now, if you don't know what that looks like, you're in good company. Because no one knows what that looked like. In fact, I suspect that when Luke was interviewing some of the eyewitnesses, the people that were there that day, they were like, oh, it kind of looked like a tongue, but how do you describe a tongue descending from heaven? And yet it it looked like it was on fire, but yet it kind of spread like fire. All I know is that it just, that the, each, there was these different ones and they descended on every single one of us that were there. Like they'd never seen anything like it before and they never saw anything like it after. And so they're trying to recollect, what, wait, what, what was that? And so Luke does his best and s- describes what they described. There was these divided tongues as of fire and they settled on each person. And what we see is that as soon as that tongue lands on each person, they began to speak in tongues. Many of you have heard that phrase, speaking in tongues. But what exactly does that mean? Because there are entire churches and denominations who have this concept of speaking in tongues as a key core critical part of their doctrine. It's a big part of their identity. And yet there are other churches who don't. They, they ignore it or even deny it. We're going to talk about that controversy here in a bit, but let's answer it. What exactly is this speaking in tongues? I think the answer is found in the very next section. Join me at verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the sound of the wind, the multitude came together and they were bewildered. Because each one of those in the crowd was hearing them, the disciples, speaking in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Then in verses 9, 10, and the first part of 11, we see a bunch of these nations get listed. So skip down to verse 11 and halfway through it. After Cretans and Arabians, we see it says this. We hear them, hear these disciples, telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, ah, they're filled with new wine. In other words, they're drunk. According to 5 through 13, speaking in tongues is just speaking another language. It it, it isn't a, a, a lost language. Some people have an argument that it's a heavenly language. But at least in this case, they're speaking languages of earth, languages of man. It's just that rather than needing to go download Duolingo and spend months studying this, they instantly had the ability to speak this language. Now, whether or not they knew exactly what they were saying or not, they were, they were speaking, though, in these languages. But we also have to ask ourselves, what were they saying in these languages? It says right there in verse 11, it says that they were telling the mighty works of God. 
What was the most recent mighty work of God that happened just 50 days prior? The resurrection. In other words, these disciples are sharing about the resurrection. They're preaching the gospel, but they're speaking it in the heart language of all of these people. Now, I know I skipped over verses 9 through 11, but if you skim through there, you'll notice all these different names. Those are not suburbs of Jerusalem. Those are nations. Those are people groups. And they all spoke a different language. Now, most everyone in that day, they all spoke at least two languages, if not three or more. And so if the disciples had been speaking in Koine Greek or, or because they're all Jews speaking in Hebrew, they probably would have been understood. But there's something about hearing something in your heart language. Many nations within our world today, the people speak a couple of different languages. And so, yeah, you could say, oh, hey, we're going to this country, and they all speak French. So you could speak French to them, but it turns out that in the home, they're speaking their own language. And so many missionaries and Bible translators want to get the Bible into their heart language because that's the one they think about. That's the one that moves them emotionally. That's how they're going to understand it the best. And it's going to help them realize God is for you. You don't have to become French or become English or become Spanish or German in order to understand this gospel. This gospel can come to you in your language. So God empowers them immediately to speak this, these languages so the gospel goes forth and it cuts them right to the heart. And this is remarkable to me because it tells us several things. First, it means that God is for all these people. They didn't have to go and learn another language. God is trying to communicate to them right in their language. So, so it shows us God's heart for people. But also, what was the mandate? The mandate was to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and into the earth. And yet, here are Jews from all around the region, even as far as Egypt and Rome, whether they've come in for Pentecost or they've chosen as a Jew to live in Jerusalem with their fellow Jews, they are hearing the gospel. So the nations had come to Jerusalem. And right here in the very beginning, as the power of the Holy Spirit has come onto them, they are beginning to share what they witnessed, the death and resurrection of Christ. God's heart is for these people. And what better way to show it and communicate it than to have the gospel begin to be communicated right there in their own language. The Galileans, they didn't need this. They could have talked with each other in, in whatever, Koine Greek or Hebrew. So, so this was not about them. This was ultimately about the outsider. Sometimes I think churches get so caught up in only thinking about themselves, they forget that God has a heart for those outside. We never want to ignore you. You matter. We want to invest in you, disciple you, because you are going to be the ones to go into the harvest. Remember, the harvest is great, but the labors are few. But we always have to have a position of it. We want to help reach the harvest. And we want to welcome those into our church family. Because this is what we see God do. Now, before we move on with the next section, we need to stop and address some of the controversy. This whole thing of uh, speaking in tongues. Oh, you know what? Before I get there, I, there's one point I, I forgot to make out, I, that I do want to point out. Another thing that this shows us is that God had sent the nations to Israel. Sometimes going 
does not mean you have to go and become an overseas missionary. It, it, it could be, but it doesn't have to be. Sometimes going could just be simply going to work. Or it could be going to school. It could be just going across the street. It, it could just be going across the room. Because sometimes God, rather than sending you to the nations, sometimes sends the nations to you. Do you guys know that we have 150 international students out of college just right down the road? God has sent the nations to us. That's why I encourage you this August, sign up to become a friendship family. It's worked through the international department there. All they do is they connect you up with one student. If you want to do more than one student, you can. And then all you do is just try to build a relationship a couple times a year. Try to connect with them. Make sure they're doing okay. Do they need to get some laundry done? Do they need a trip to Walmart? Just show them the love of God through you, through your time. And if God leads it and opens it up and conversations go in such a way, you might either help them find Jesus or if they're already a follower of Jesus, help them go deeper with Jesus. To to fulfill this mandate doesn't always mean we're going to have to send a mission team to Haiti we, we can do that, but God has sent some people from Haiti to us and from Africa and from Europe and from South America and Central America. They're right, they're right down the street. How can we be a blessing to them? Okay, now, the controversy. This whole thing on speaking in tongues, uh, there's basically like a spectrum. On one end, you have those who would believe that what we read here in Acts 2 is to be a a common normative experience within the the Christian faith. And and so these people are often called Pentecostals because they they think that the events of Pentecost are for today or sometimes called Charismatics. The Greek word charis means grace or gift. So they believe that these spiritual gifts, including the miraculous spiritual gifts, are in operation today. So Charismatic. Many of them would teach that if you are a follower of Christ, you need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, because that's what we see. We see a group of of Jesus followers who are all together in this room, and then God sends the Holy Spirit to them, and they are baptized in the Holy Spirit, and the evidence of that baptism is speaking in tongues. So that's the, the one side of the spectrum. The other side of the spectrum would be what are called cessationists. They would argue that the miraculous gifts were just used by God in that time. That what we saw really did happen. They don't deny that. But they would say that these things have faded and passed away. Some of their evidence is from 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10. Right after the famous love passage, Paul says this, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Their argument is that the scriptures are perfect. That when the canon of scripture was complete, we had everything we needed to know the heart of God. We just needed to continue to dive in and study it. So the miraculous gifts weren't needed anymore. And as you study the biblical record, as we'll see here in Acts, we're going to see a bunch of of activity with these miraculous gifts early, but as we study through Acts, we'll see them fade. They'll become less and less. If you take Paul's letters and put them in chronological order, you'll see like some of his earliest letters, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he talks about these spiritual gifts, but as we get to later uh, uh, letters, 
He doesn't mention them as much, if at all. And, and so their argument is that they were used in that time, but they're not needed now, and they have ceased their operation. So what we see in Acts 2 is an historical event, not a normative event in the life of a follower of Jesus. So that's, that's kind of the, the spectrum. Now, my, my purpose today is not to... Um, uh, dive super deep uh, in this. Uh, this has been debated for hundreds of, maybe even a thousand years. We're not going to accomplish it in a 35-minute sermon. Uh, all right? So we're going to just kind of take a rock and we're going to skip it across the surface to at least help us get an understanding of where we are at as, as, as a pastor, where our elder team is, where we as a church are. But we are a big tent uh, church, meaning you do not have to fully believe as we do in order to be a part of our church family and worship with us, okay? So this is not a, you've got to see it this way or you're out. It's, this is where we're at, but we are fine with you being a part of this because I have great respect for my charismatic brothers and sisters. I grew up in a charismatic church. I saw their heart for God, their passion they, they have this, this love of God's power that they are open to however God wants to lead. And I respect that. At the same time, I also respect my, my uh, cessationist brothers and sisters. Many of them have this deep, deep love of the scriptures. Some of our greatest theologians are, are uh, cessationists. They, they've had such influence upon Christianity. And so I don't say this to say, well, they're all wrong or only one side's wrong. I say that, that I believe they are all part of the kingdom of God and we can learn from all and, and try to figure out what it is that the scriptures teach. Because when I left my charismatic church, I had a lot of questions. Because I saw some things and experienced some things that seemed to contradict and deny what the cessationists claim at the same time, I saw some things and experienced some things that even denied what my charismatic church was teaching me. And so when I moved out of the home and headed off to college, I was really confused on this topic. And so I just decided I got to take a step back and I have to figure this out for myself. And here's where I landed and continue to land years later. I can't land fully into the, the uh, cessationist camp as much respect as I have for them. Because when I see 1 Corinthians 13, where it says that when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away, he goes on to be saying what sounds like heaven. To me, heaven is the place of perfection. That when this life is complete and we enter into that which is perfect and has come, then there is no more need for knowledge. Because we have God right there to teach us. There's no more need for prophecy because God is the one declaring it to us. There's no more need for tongues because we'll all be speaking the language of heaven. And so I want to have an open hand. And if God so desires someone to have a spiritual gift of tongues, because he's going to use that to help someone else find Jesus, then God has my permission to do so. With that said, though, I, I can't fully land into the, the charismatic camp either. In, uh, first of all, I saw a lot of confusion that it brought to people. And we see Paul address that in 1 Corinthians 14. In 1 Corinthians 14, down in verse 23, he says, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, 
Will they not say you are out of your minds? Sometimes we chase after these spiritual gifts, especially our, our brothers and sisters in the charismatic camp, and they chase after it because there can be something euphoric about it, but it becomes all about me and my experience, and yet it's actually becoming a hindrance to the gospel being shared. The whole entire point of God sending the Holy Spirit, empowering them to speak in tongues, was so that they could declare the mighty works of God, which includes the resurrection of Jesus. And now Paul is saying, but sometimes that speaking in tongues can become a hindrance to someone hearing the gospel. They'll look at you and go, you're crazy. And they won't want to hear it. That's why he said earlier, back in verse 19, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind. In other words, to speak intelligible, understandable words in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue which no one would understand. So, this is why I, I just can't say, oh, yeah, everyone should speak in tongues because it can create confusion. Also, I don't think biblically everyone does speak in tongue. I was taught that I, that I was to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and the evidence of that would be the speaking in tongues. And yet we see in 1 Corinthians 12 that not everyone does. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, right after saying that he wants them to understand these spiritual gifts, he says down in verse uh, 10, he's talking about how these different gifts are given to different believers. In verse 10, Paul says, To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. So yeah, God gives the ability to learn these languages, to speak them to some, but it's not necessarily to all. And and he he confirms this at the very end of the chapter. As he's finishing up chapter 12, he asks all of these rhetorical questions. And in verse 30, he says, do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And the unstated answer is, well, no. And so I can't say, well, tongues have completely ceased because if God needs to, wants to use it, then I think he can and will. But at the same time, I don't think that there is this baptism of the Holy Spirit that needs to happen separate from your salvation, and the evidence of that is the speaking in tongues. Has that been some people's experience? Yes. But has that been my experience? No. I believe that the baptism of the Holy Spirit happens the moment you put your faith in Christ. The way Ephesians puts it is you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's like God brands you. And in that moment, he gives you spiritual gifts. And if he wants you to have a spiritual gift of tongues, because that's what's needed to help someone find Jesus and follow him, that's his prerogative. But in our day and age, that's not as needed and as necessary. More likely, he's going to give you a spiritual gift of mercy, or teaching, or leadership, or acts of service. Things that will help benefit the church now and help the outsiders in the harvest to find Jesus and follow him but I'm going to let God be God. And if he wants to give these gifts, he can do it. But all I know is that he's given me certain gifts, and so I need to try to seek how to use those gifts for his glory and for the benefit of his people. So that's a bit of where I land. It's a bit of where Riverwood lands. But again, we are a big tent church. Uh, if you disagree within there, but you know that the, the, it's all about Jesus, then this is a church we want you to be a part of. Because that's ultimately what I see in Acts 2. 
even in all the midst of the confusion, we get all caught up in the speaking in tongues. And what sometimes we miss is that ultimately all of this is pointing to Christ. We see it there in what they're declaring as they're speaking in tongues. They're declaring the mighty works of God, which would have included the resurrection. But we also see it in what occurs next. So if you have your Bible still open there in Acts, the next part we see is Paul's, I mean, sorry, Paul, Peter's sermon. Peter has an absolutely brilliant sermon. Uh, We are not going to take the time to read the entire thing, so that's why I encourage you to read it later today. But this is a brilliant sermon. So here's the basic outline. First, when we concluded the previous section, we saw that there were some people mocking. They're laughing. They're thinking, oh, these guys are just drunk. I mean, you can kind of understand why they might think that. You've heard this rushing sound of wind. You're kind of like, wait, what what was that? And other people are like, I I think I heard it over there. And and so the crowd starts moving. So you just kind of go along with the crowd. Suddenly you show up and maybe you can't quite hear your language or maybe you don't speak any of those languages. And so it just sounds like a bunch of noise. And you're thinking, okay, these people are a little weird. They must be drunk. Peter starts right there where the people are at. Verse 15. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. The way the Jews counted time then is the day started at sunrise. That would be hour zero. So the third hour of the day would be roughly about 9 a.m. So he's saying, hey, guys, it's only mid-morning. We are not drunk. Then he takes them from where they're at, thinking, oh, a bunch of crazies, to helping them see where God is at. Here's what God is doing. Verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." So he's saying, all right, you guys are over here thinking we're drunk. We're not. Actually, what's happening is God is doing a work and he's fulfilling this prophecy that he made seven to 800 years ago through the prophet Joel. And now right here in this day, it's happening. It's being fulfilled. But then we notice he doesn't stop right there. He he doesn't quote from Joel. And by the way, he's speaking to a, a whole audience of Jews. They would all be familiar with the book of Joel. So what he's talking about, they'd be going... Oh, I know that passage. And then it's starting to dawn on them. But then notice, Peter doesn't go, so guys, that, that's what's going on. All right, so hey, hey, everyone just head back. We're just going to go back in here and continue on with our speaking in tongues. No, he says, here's what God is doing, and he ties it to the work that God has just done, the resurrection. Go down to verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. Keep in mind, these guys have been living as Jesus is on the earth. They've heard about his teaching. They've heard about the miracles. Some of them have probably even been out there and seen the miracles. They know about these things. So he's saying, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. Right? This Jesus of Nazareth did these things, and yet, verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Some of those who were in the audience listening to Peter preach, 
they were also in the audience yelling at Jesus' trial before uh, before Pilate, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Others, they heard about these things, but they remained silent. They did not cry out, no, 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 he's innocent. He's from God. Don't do this. They stayed silent out of fear. And Peter's putting the blame on them. You crucified him when you handed him over to lawless men. But Peter knows the story wasn't done. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the people have heard this rushing wind. They've all shown up. They hear all these languages being spoken. There's something weird going on. And now Peter's pointing it and bringing it all back to Jesus. All of this is taking place so that the gospel can go forward. Think about it. He empowered everyone to speak these these different languages so that they could hear the gospel in their heart language. And now Peter is confirming what they just heard in their heart language by speaking where they all can understand and helping them see God loves you, God is for you, Jesus died for you, even though you are the ones who sent him to the cross. It's a powerful powerful sermon. And clearly, it cuts them because at the very end, all the way down in verse 37, we hear them say to to Peter and to the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Right? So they've heard this sermon. They've heard about the gospel. It's cut them to the heart. What do we do? And Peter replies, verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He tells them to do two things. First, repent. For those that were there in the audience yelling crucify him, repent. For those who stood there silent as Jesus is being handed over, repent. But even for those who've just been living their lives for themselves, who've been steeped in their own sin. Repent. Doesn't stop there, though. He's not just a a street preacher yelling out, repent or go to hell. No, he says the next step, and be baptized. Baptism is the preaching of the gospel with your body. Just as Jesus died on a cross, was buried in a tomb, and raised a new life, When a Christian says, I give my life to Jesus, they step into the waters, they are buried with Christ and raised to walk in newness of life. It's this idea that just as you take an outward bath to get clean, God has done a spiritual inner work in you to make you clean. It's you publicly declaring that because Jesus gave his life for me, I now give my life to him. The old me is gone A new me has arisen. I am given new birth in Christ and I'm now going to follow him. If you know the gospel, you know Jesus died on a cross for your sins, you know he rose from the dead, but have never been baptized, it's time. It's time. Obey. Think about it. This is the very first sermon that is being preached. The very first church service... And what is the the application? Repent and be baptized from the very beginning. Because as he points out, you will receive the forgiveness of sin. If you have received the forgiveness of your sin, 
then why, if God has given this to you, will you not give all of you to him? So go public. Get baptized. Write it on your, your connection card and drop it in there and, and I'll get in touch. I, yes, it might mean we'll have to borrow Crosspoint's tank again or maybe buy our own. Maybe get a fancy horse tank and put it up here. Maybe we rent the W. Maybe we plan something for the summer and the river. But let's make it happen. Jesus gave his life for you. Will you now go public in you saying, I'm giving my life to follow him? Be baptized. <clears throat> if you do get baptized, you are obviously going to be joining a huge throng of people. I want you to notice what happens down in verse 41. And I, I'm sorry for those of you who uh, are using the screens because I don't have this one up there. In verse 41, we see that those who received the word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Th think about that for a second. Chapter 1, verse 15, we've got about 120 people. Country church. Now in one day, 3,000 are added. Mega church. I cannot imagine the logistical nightmare of all of that. And yet it happened. And they welcomed them. And, and so I feel like to close, I need to address three different groups of people. First, if you are a part of the Riverwood family, and by the way, we do not define Riverwood family as being like a member here. Our word is partner. That's a, kind of a different level of commitment. If you're attending on Sundays, if you're getting involved in a growth group, if you're serving with us, you're part of the family. If you're part of the family, then you need to see, first of all, that the power of the Holy Spirit is to be working through us. But second of all, new people matter to God. He, he did not tell the, the merry band of 120 to just stay themselves. No, he just added 3,000. Talk about wrecking your small group. But people matter so much that he gave them the ability to speak in the heart languages of all of these different groups. And so if Peter, people matter that much to God, they need to matter that much to us. And so as new people come on a Sunday, we need to be the most welcoming place on the planet. Now, I do not have fears that when someone walks in here, they're going to get rejected. You guys are great. But it doesn't mean we can't continue to get better. Because I understand the draw. We're Iowans. We're nice people. We want to go up to our friends, the people we know, the people who are in our growth group. We want to connect. Hey, how was your trip last week? Hey, how'd that go? How's work been? We want to reconnect, and that's good. But let's not do it where we exclude the new person. Instead, we need to learn how to say to one another, hey, can I talk to you in a minute? I want to go greet this person. Because new people matter to God. You have no idea the story that God is writing in those people's lives that person might become your new best friend. That person might need Jesus. That person might end up becoming a leader here at Riverwood. And if all we do is get into our little holy huddles and ignore them, we may not get the wonderful opportunity of seeing God work in them and through them where we also benefit. So new people matter to God. So let's be the most welcoming people we possibly can, not just on Sundays, but in our entire lives, at work, at school, in our communities. Let's invite people into our growth groups. Let's invite people to serve with us. Let's just be a place that has a culture of invitation because God clearly loves people. So with that said, the second group I want to talk to today is those who are kind of new to Riverwood. This is your first, second, third, fourth time or whatever, and you're not totally sure this is where you want to be. Just let you know, we're obviously not the biggest church. 
Definitely not the coolest church, because you have to have me as a pastor. I think I was cool for about 17 seconds in 1996. That was the, the glory days, or glory seconds, I should say. So you're not going to come and be able to get awesomeness. What you are going to do is, is get a group of people who want to authentically pursue Jesus. Some of us were new at this. Some of us were stumbling along. Some of us are passionate about it. But we are all trying to go the same direction towards Christ. Just as this whole entire passage, in the confusion of tongues and everything going on, we see how it points to Jesus, that's the kind of church we want to be. If you are a follower of Jesus, we invite you to be a part of this. Just know we're going to do everything we can to continue to point you to Christ. If all you're wanting to do is just show up on Sundays, have something kind of comfortable, by all means, you're allowed to come, be a part. I just want you to know, you're going to hear regularly that God has something more for you. We do not want you just to simply find the American dream and be comfortable. We want you to have a God-sized dream and see God do more in you than you ever thought possible. I believe God has a bigger dream for your life than you realize. And I'd love to get to be a part of it and watch God work through you. So if you're a follower of Jesus, by all means, you, you can be part of Riverwood. Just know we're going to constantly be trying to push you to grow in your faith because we believe that's what God has for you. But then the last group of people I want to talk to are those who may not know Christ. Maybe you're here because someone drug you here. Maybe you've joined us online or you're listening to the podcast after and you're doing this maybe out of duty or, or for whatever reason. But if you're honest with yourself, you know, I don't know Jesus. I have not put my faith in him. Then I'm just going to give you Peter's invitation to repent and be baptized. God loves you. Jesus died for you. Your sin is forgiven through the cross. And God wants to rescue you from that sin, from what you're entrapped in, and bring you into a new life. All he asks of you is that you repent of that sin and be baptized to say, I now belong to him. If that's you, then let this next moment as we pray become the moment that you pray to give your life to Jesus. So let's, let's go to, in prayer. So Heavenly Father, I just pray right now for anyone who has, is not a follower of you, that, that as they pray to you, you would hear their prayer and you would hear them confess their sin to repent of it. You would hear their longing to follow you. You would hear their thankfulness that you forgive them of their sin, that there is no sin too great that they have committed that the cross of Christ cannot vanquish. Jesus, we are so grateful for who you are and what you did that this mighty work of God was done on our behalf. We did not deserve it, and yet it was out of your love, out of your grace, out of your goodness, out of your mercy, out of your joy that you, Jesus, went to the cross to free us of this sin. So I pray that right now would be someone's spiritual birthday, that we would see them confess that sin to repent, and they would believe, and they would declare that you are God. Lord, I pray for the person that has been searching for a church home. If Riverwood is the place for them, we'd love to see them be a part of this as we continue on this mission to go out into the harvest. Lord, if Riverwood's not the right spot for them, I pray you'd help them connect with the right church family that will disciple them, that will help them go deep with you, that will help them to get on mission for you. Because God, we are so surrounded by the things of this earth. We get so entrapped by them that we miss something bigger, something even better. 
forgive us, Father, for just chasing after comfort, for just chasing after uh, uh, prestige, for reputation, for chasing after material things that will fade. God, continue to reorient our hearts that we value you most, that you would be what stirs our affections, you would be what we treasure, that you would be our center. And then, Lord, I just pray for us as a church. I am so grateful that nine years after a launch, when there were many days when I didn't think this was going to ever happen, you did it. It clearly didn't happen by my talent or anyone else's. This is an evidence, testimony of what you have done. And God, I am so thankful that I believe you still have even better days, greater days for us. Help us to be a place that treasures you. But because we treasure you, we would have your heart and we would then love people the way you love them. Your heart is clearly for the nations, God. May you stir our hearts that we would feel the same. And that would come out in the way we interact with our people, with, with our friends in our growth group, with our family at home, with those that we work with, those that we go to school with, those that we play with, the, the, those that we interact with. Lord, may we be a, a church that loves the international students at Warburg, that we would be a place that loves all the college students at Warburg. We'd be a place that loves the senior citizens who may be stuck at home. That we'd be a, a group that loves those who feel shut in or ignored or feel outcast. People matter to you, God. So often we only want to be around people that are like us, that think like us, that speak like us, and yet clearly your kingdom is for all. Help us to have that kind of heart. So God, I pray that you do this in us because I believe this is where we will find our greatest joy and it is also where you will be most glorified. And also, Lord, lastly, I just pray for our unity as a church that where many churches have divided over these issues of doctrine about the Holy Spirit or speaking in tongues or, or a number of these issues, these things are important, but God, so often we miss the gospel in the midst of it. Help us to be a church that is centered upon Jesus, upon the foundation of, of Christ, that he would be our cornerstone. And that we would then be able, with love and grace, navigate through these issues to understand what it is you call us to, the kind of people you call us to be, to live out the mission you call us to do. Because God, we want to be faithful to the mandate. I believe you've given us your Holy Spirit. Help us to live in his power and to go to our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But God, to see that happen, protect us. Give us unity. Do not let our enemy come in to try and steal, kill, and destroy what you have done here. Because I believe you want to do something wonderful in this world. And we want to be a part of it. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, if you uh, today have put your faith in Jesus, would you take that connection card and would you just write that on the back there? If you're joining us online, would you just send us an email to riverwood at weareriverwood? Uh, if you have any prayer requests that came up as uh, we were uh, talking or praying, totally feel free to write those down as we sing this last song and then just drop your connection cards in our giving boxes. But would you please stand with us as we sing this last one?